0: Walt Disney by Neil Gabler, Chapter 46 It had always been about control, about crafting a better reality than the one outside the studio, and about demonstrating that one had the capacity to do so. That was what Walt Disney provided to America—not escape, as so many analysts would surmise, but control and the vicarious empowerment that accompanied it. And that was what America seemed to want from him— Though the immediate post-war period had been triumphant for the country, the mood quickly turned from euphoria to uncertainty, what historian William Luktenberg would describe as a troubled feast in his account of the time. The feast was the nation's unprecedented economic growth, fueled largely by military spending. In the ten years after the war wages rose and working hours decreased, home ownership jumped, higher education was made available to returning veterans, and general consumption soared. All of which led sociologist Seymour Martin Lipset to declare, "...the fundamental problems of the Industrial Revolution have been solved." But despite the hopefulness, a general sense of malaise wafted through the nation. In part, it was a result of the Cold War between the capitalist and communist blocs, colder still after the Soviet Union detonated an atomic bomb in August 1949. Americans, understandably, felt they were threatened from without by Russia. They would also come to feel that they were threatened from within by a cadre of communists and communist sympathizers who had had wedged their way into the government— the alleged Fifth Columnists that Senator Joseph McCarthy would ride to headlines. But it wasn't just the communist threat to government that led to anxiety. No less in authority than President Truman's Attorney General J. Howard McGrath said communists were everywhere, in factories, offices, butcher stores, on street corners, and in private businesses, and each carries in himself the death of society. Dire as that sounded, Probably more important was the feeling of dislocation that accompanied rapid change during the period. Along with the rise of wages and the growth of consumption, America was undergoing suburbanization, a revolution in mass communication with the introduction of television in the early 1950s, increased physical mobility with automobiles, a national highway construction program, and a boom in commercial airlines, new technologies, bureaucratization, and even in the development of a new personality type to negotiate the new society, a type that that sociologist David Reisman would describe as other-directed, or driven less by an internal compass than by a need to please others, and what William White would call the organization man who was concerned as much with managing the bureaucracy as with acquiring skills. What all these phenomena, from McCarthyism to suburbanization to the organization man, had in common, historian William Chafe would write, was that all were related to the existentialist dilemma of finding a way to create meaning in the face of forces over which one had no control. Walt Disney, like General Dwight Eisenhower, who would be elected president in 1952 and hid an iron will behind a f- An iron will behind a facade of affability promised control. When America was enjoying its burst of self-confidence immediately after the war, critics generally disdained Disney's cartoons, in part because the films were shabbily made and the sense of control in them seemed to have diminished. But once the Cold War began, Americans seemed again to need reassurance, which may explain why Cinderella, an old-fashioned and familiar sort of Disney animation, a controlled animation, found favor. Walt's own comment on the nuclear peril was, if people would think more of fairies, they would soon forget the atom bomb. Disney, a tonic force during the Depression, was now a touchstone, providing comfort in a time of foreboding. As was so often the case, what was true for the country was true for Walt Disney personally. If America found control and reassurance in his films, he had found both in his model trains, which was one reason he pursued them. But that was not the only reason. The trains were also the bridgehead of a much larger scheme that was organizing itself in Walt Disney's mind. At least as early as 1947, he had begun collecting miniatures, furniture, figurines, couches, boats, farm machinery, even tiny liquor bottles and crates ostensibly these were adornments for the train layout and another pastime to take his mind off the studio when as he wrote his sister problems become too hectic But as Walt scoured miniature shops during his trip to Europe in 1949 and on his various forays to New York and even up into New England, as he attended miniature shows, as he enlisted friends to find miniatures for him, as he solicited miniatures through catalogs, Midwestern newspapers and hobbyist magazines, using the name of a studio secretary as he had used machinist Dick Jones to solicit model train information, he hit upon a plan. With his own two hands, he would create an entire miniature American turn-of-the-century village, a sort of lilliputian Marceline, and then display it in large cases across the country, True to Walt's new post-war persona, he said that the project would be a means to convey traditional values, though the underlying metaphor wouldn't have been more trans- couldn't have been more transparent. Building the village was another way for Walt to assert his control at the very time he seemed to be losing it. To realize the plan, Walt buttonholed layout artist Ken Anderson and offered to put him on his personal payroll. Anderson was to paint scenes of Americana that Walt would then bring to life with the miniatures. You can paint some paintings like Norman Rockwell, Anderson recalled Walt saying, and I'll build them. The work would be done secretly. Not so much, it seemed, because Walt was afraid of the idea getting out as because he didn't want the project to be infected and corrupted by the studio's corporate mentality. This was his, not the company's. He installed Anderson in a room on the third floor of the animation building to which only he and Anderson had the keys. Here, Anderson painted. Eventually, the two of them would take little expeditions to downtown Los Angeles, hunting for materials. Sometimes, Walt would disappear... Disappear for a day or two, Anderson said, and then return with a whole sack full of various items from which to construct the scenes. Walt himself admitted to one vendor of materials. I became so absorbed that the cares of the studio fade away, at least for a time. Oh, I become so absorbed. Indeed, as Anderson explained it, Walt was having such fun making these things that he completely forgot to pay me. And when Walt happened to ask another An- and when Walt happened to ask whether Anderson had been compensated and Anderson said he hadn't, I got paid and paid and paid and paid. Over time, Anderson drew nearly two dozen sketches of archetypal American scenes, among them a blacksmith reading a newspaper, a minister in the pulpit, a clatch of gossiping women, a general store, a granny in her rocker before a hearth. But even before he began constructing his tableau, Walt came to two realizations— the first was that he couldn't fabricate the scenes completely by himself and that he would need more assistance. He recruited a sculptor named Cristodoro to help make the figures and a sketch artist named Harper Goff, whom he had met in a London model train shop during his European trip to oversee Treasure Island. The second realization was that the scenes couldn't be static. They had to move, which required the additional recruitment of machinist Roger Brogy, who had helped Walt build his train, and an animated Come sculptor named Wathel Rogers. Now, Walt, inspired by wind up toys that he had found and dissected in Europe, became an exper- began an experiment. In February 1951, he hired the actor and dancer Buddy Ebsen to perform a short tap dance in front of a grid. Walt directed it himself. The performance was filmed on 35 millimeter stock and then analyzed by Brogy and Rogers to determine how they might replicate the movements with a mechanical figure that Cristodoro had made. Brogy later recalled that they examined the footage frame by frame, only to discover that Ebsen never exactly repeated his steps. Moreover, just as it had been difficult to animate clothing, Brogy and Rogers could never quite get the mechanical figure's pants to flop in the same way that Ebsen's did. Still, they made the man dance using the same kind of cam system that the wind-up toys employed, and Walt entered a new territory that further extended the metaphor of control. As the historian Jackson Lears would observe of this departure, the quintessential product of the Disney empire would not be fantasy, but simulated reality. Not the cartoon character, but the audio-animatronic robot, of which the mechanical man was the first. Walt Disney had crept closer still to creating and perfecting life. Already in January, even before the Epson experiment, Walt was writing a specialist in display cases that it always takes a lot of time to work the bugs out of mechanical contraptions, and this one must be absolutely right before I can go ahead on the others, but that he expected to have a pretty good show worked up by next Christmas. At the time, he had the crew work on another tableau, this one of a barbershop quartet, while he personally worked on the scene of Granny and her rocker. By March, when he asked Short's production chief Harry Tittle to handle the logistics of the touring show, he had already spent nearly $24,000 on the miniatures and the train, and he demanded as much value for his money as he had on the animations. He was constantly having miniatures sent to him on approval, then returning them for shoddy craftsmanship or lack of detail. For a man of his stature, he was also surprisingly concerned about the value of his own craftsmanship. He had designed and fabricated by hand small pot-bellied stoves that he sent on consignment to a miniatures dealer in New York, but he was incensed when the dealer charged only $15 and asked that she keep them on display for a while longer and see what you can really get for them. When the dealer boosted the price to $25 and sold one, Walt glowed. The thing that pleases me is that you sold a stove for $25." Meanwhile, Walt forged ahead on his exhibition, which was now called Disneylandia, and which he described as a series of visual jukeboxes with the record-playing mechanism being replaced by a miniature stage setting. He was considering exhibiting the show in department stores or in railroad cars where school children could bring coins to quote unquote, play the scenes, though Walt hesitated at having children come to freight yards, and in any case, he had been told emphatically that the exhibition couldn't possibly be profitable. In the end, he settled for unveiling the scene of Granny Kincaid at a festival of California living at the Pan Pacific Auditorium in Los Angeles in November 1952. The vitrine, roughly eight feet long, contained tiny rugs, a plank floor, a stone fireplace, lace curtains, dishes, and even an outhouse with a potty, and it featured a narration by actress Beulah Bondi, who had played Granny Kincaid in So Dear to My Heart columnist hedda hopper who had visited the festival marveled at walt's handiwork and asked why does he do it to which walt answered damned if i know but he knew very well why he did it Beyond the psychological benisons of control and the tactile exhilaration of his own craftsmanship, beyond the way it preoccupied him while the studio seemed to wobble, he did it because he harbored an even larger, more audacious plan, a plan for which Disneylandia was only a trial run, and a plan that seemed to sustain him even as he was losing interest in the rest of his company. It is impossible to say exactly when, but Walt Disney had decided to build an amusement park. Rudy Ising, an old Kansas City friend and one of the Lafagram employees, recalled his and Walt's visits to Electric Park, an amusement complex, and how on one of these excursions Walt had told him, One of these days I'm going to build an amusement park and it's going to be clean. Diane Disney thought the Inception took place during the Sunday afternoons when Walt picked the girls up from religious services. He never attended them himself, and took them to the Griffith Park merry-go-round where they would spend hours. He'd see families in the park, Diane would recall, and say, there's nothing for the parents to do. You've got to have a place where the whole family can have fun. Diane thought he used those afternoons and later ones with Sharon at a small amusement park at La Cienega and Beverly in Los Angeles as a sort of research project. Roy thought that... Roy thought that it had all begun with the model trains. Once Walt began building his locomotive, Roy told an interviewer, he always wanted to build a big play train for the public, though it was unclear whether Walt built the model trains because he had the park in mind or whether he had the park in mind because he built the model trains. Wilfred Jackson said that Walt had first broached the idea for an amusement park during the Snow White premiere, where Walt had a dwarf's cottage erected outside the theater as a display. As they walked past it, Walt told Jackson that he wanted to build a park scaled to children's size. Ben Sharpstein said he first heard about a park in 1940 when he accompanied Walt to New York for a demonstration of Fantasound, and Walt discussed his plans for setting up displays on a strip of land across the street from the studio between Riverside Drive and the Los Angeles River. Just something to show people who wanted to visit the Disney studio, Walt said. Dick Irvine, an art director at the studio, remembered Walt coming into the office during the war and describing a public tour of the studio that Irvine felt later expanded into the amusement park. And John Hinch, an animator and layout man, recalled Walt in the 1940s pacing out the parking lot and imagining the boundaries for an amusement park there. As he was prowling shops and pouring through catalogs for miniatures, and as he was milling parts for his own railroad, he was thinking and even talking in earnest about installing a scale model passenger train to circumnavigate the studio, and about landscaping its route with what he referred to as a village. In the spring of 1948, Walt had mentioned to Harry Tittle the idea of constructing a train ride on the seven-acre Riverside Drive plot, and in the summer of 1948, work Kimball was gushing to Walt about the railroad concession at an amusement park outside San Francisco that had reaped $50,000 the previous year, enough to pay for all the other concessions in the park. By the time Walt and Kimball left for the Chicago Railroad Fair that August, Walt was pressing Casey Jones, his fellow railroad enthusiast, to find him a locomotive for the village as an anchor and was half apologizing for the scale of his project. While I know the whole plan I have in mind sounds quite elaborate, yet I feel the success of it depends upon the project being very complete. On the way back from Chicago, Walt and Kimball made a two-day detour to Henry Ford's Greenfield Village in Michigan, Walt's second visit there, and Walt returned to California more inspired and expansive than ever about his park. Kimball said it was all Walt talked about on the trip. He could visualize it just the way he had once visualized the animations. He could see not just the train ride, but the park around which it would run, and by the end of August, he had made extensive notes for a production designer named Dick Dick Kelsey. He described a main village with a railroad station and a village green, obviously modeled after Marceline. It will be a place for people to sit and rest. Mothers and grandmothers can watch over small children at play, Walt wrote. I want it to be very relaxing, cool, and inviting. A small town would be built around the green with the railroad station at one end and a town hall at the other and police and fire stations in between. A variety of little stores would ring the green where Disney merchandise would be sold. There would be a 300-seat combination opera house and movie theater. In the middle of the park, he envisioned an ice cream hot dog stand, but he also thought of a restaurant. And there would be other sections too. An old farm, a western village, an Indian compound, no doubt influenced by the Santa Fe compound at the railroad fair, and a carnival area with rides, typical Midway stuff. A buckboard would carry passengers through the western village and the old farm. Already, he was securing plans for a riverboat, and he had sent Jack Cutting, the head of the foreign operation, to scout merry-go-rounds in Europe. By October, however, the plans had been temporarily sidelined. To tell the truth, I've been so involved in production matters since I got back, he wrote a Santa Fe executive, executive to whom he had been enthusing over his plans after returning from the railroad fair and then two weeks in Arizona, that I haven't given any further thought to my project. Instead, with neither the time nor the resources to devote to his village, he launched Disneylandia, most likely because it was an inexpensive and manageable way to dip his toe into the waters of amusement and to test concepts for the larger park while he supervised production. For a man who was always impatient, always drumming his fingers during presentations or snapping at subordinates when they didn't grasp his ideas immediately, or dragging nervously on cigarettes, it was also a way to keep moving forward rather than wait i'm going to move on to something else because i'm wasting my time if i mess around with that any longer he would often tell nurse hazel george about various stalemated projects and instead of trying to solve what momentarily was an insoluble situation george would say he would go on to something else so he kept constantly in movement the product the production matters that now diverted him were the completion of so dear to my heart the combination of the wind in the willows and the legend of sleepy hollow which were being packaged as a single film the adventures of ichabod and mr toad and cinderella all of which were released in a period of just over a year between January 1949 and February 1950. While none of these films alone might have commanded his attention now that he was playing with his trains and contemplating his village, together they made incursions. He was also contending with Alice in Wonderland, Lewis Carroll's story of a girl who follows a rabbit down his hole and into a series of surrealistic adventures. No project had been at the studio longer. Walt had first discussed it with Mary Pickford in 1933, and bought the rights to the Lewis Carroll books with the the Tenniel illustrations in 1938, shortly after Snow White, and none had proved more intractable. Over the years, Walt had assigned various writers to the film, among them novelist Aldous Huxley, who, according to Dick Humor, couldn't get in a word at story meetings without being out-talked by Walt, Five meetings or so, and we never saw him again,' "'humor said of Huxley's brief 1945 tenure. "'Huxley wasn't the only one who had difficulties. "'There is no story in the book,' said Bob Carr, "'who had been the head of the story department "'during one early go at Alice. "'Moreover,' he observed, "'Alice has no character. "'She merely plays straight man to a cast of screwball comics. "'It is too bad for any leading character "'to be placed in this un- in this untenable position.' Walt didn't agree. You could hear him with the animators at work, Diane recalled, saying Alice was cold. You couldn't get any warmth into her. Ben Sharpstein said that the animators were none too enthusiastic about the film either, but that so many people over the years, especially sophisticated people in Sharpstein's words, had urged Walt to make Alice that he had felt compelled to produce it whether he liked it or not his ambivalence was evident. As they plotted forward, Walt debated whether to make it a full animation or a combination live-action animation. He announced that actress-dancer Ginger Rogers would play the title role, then a year later that Luanna Patton, the young girl slated for Song of the South, would play her, and then neither. He hired a Barnard professor to find the right voice for Alice, which ignited a controversy in Britain over whether the country's beloved character might wind up sounding American, then signed a 10-year-old English actress named Catherine Beaumont to voice the role in what was now to be a full animation. He had even consulted a psychiatrist to take a new approach to the material and assigned Storyman T. he and Bill Cottrell to have another crack at it, but they were stimmied too. Roy hated it and Walt admitted that he would have bumped it for Peter Pan had that film been ready, which it wasn't, but the studio had too much invested in Alice to shelve it. Instead, everyone soldiered on slowly and unhappily, and with premonitions of disaster, despite Walt's rosy predictions at the time of Cinderella's release. In the end, the premonitions proved all too accurate. Ward Kimball thought the sequence directors had started trying to outdo one another, which had a self-canceling effect on the final product. Harry Tittle's analysis was that Alice had too much sameness. Walt had always felt that it lacked heart and would later say, following Sharpstein, that he got trapped into making Alice in Wonderland against my better judgment and called it a terrible disappointment. It's terribly tough to transfer whimsy to the screen, he said. To another interviewer, he admitted, we just didn't feel a thing, but we were forcing ourselves to do it. The animation suffered because the staff had been further depleted by defections to the new medium of television. And just five days before it's Scheduled release in July 1951, a rival producer rushed a puppet version of the story into theaters. Walt sought an injunction, arguing that the new film was trying to capitalize on his, but he lost. Even a promotional appearance by Walt for Alice on the on the radio turned sour when he suddenly went blank and had to fumble his way through the interview. The film received tepid. Fr- tepid praise. Watching this picture is something like nibbling those wafers that Alice Eats wrote Bosley Crowther in the New York Times, and in its first release returned only $2 million on a $3 million investment. But again, Walt wasn't in Burbank to suffer the disappointment. At the time of Alice's release, he was in Europe with Lillian and the girls to supervise the second of the British live-action pictures, The Adventures of Robin Hood and His Merry Men, financed by the blocked monies of RKO and Disney, though this visit, like the one for Treasure Island, seemed to be more an excuse for an extended vacation than a business trip. Before leaving, Walt had screened films at the studio, looking at prospective actors and directors and making what he himself called merely suggestions, while he left the final decisions to to Percy Pierce, who was producing. For his part, Pierce had laid out every shot in the movie and thumbnail sketches, just as the studio had done with the animations and sent them on, along with photostats and the final script, to Walt for his approval, which Walt freely gave, though not without a veiled threat that Percy had better make the film as quickly as possible. This is important, not only to the organization, but to you as the producer, he wrote. Meanwhile, as the film was shot, Walt, Lillian, and the girls wandered through Europe, visiting the Tivoli Gardens in Denmark, and did not return to the studio until August. When he did return, he plunged back into Disneylandia and his park. At home, Lillian recalled, he would come in after running the Lily Bell and then regale the family with his plans. He had first talked of the park and and being located on the seven acres. Talked of the park being located on the seven acres across from the studio, with the train traversing the land separating the studio from nearby Griffith Park. But his plans kept growing larger until, Diane admitted, his conversation about it at home became so sweeping that I didn't take it seriously anymore. Walt, however, was deadly serious. Late that summer or early in the fall, he had Harper Goff draw overhead plans and sketches of the park, which now included a small lake and an island, and he talked about the park at every opportunity just as he had talked incessantly about Snow White when he was conceptualizing it in the mid-1930s. Every time you had a meeting with Walt on something else, Milt Call said, why the park would come up, especially if you were up in his office where he had all his drawings and stuff. One executive at ABC Television remembered Walt coming to the office even before his European trip and even before he had any of Goff's sketches to discuss possible projects but said that Walt could talk only about the park. Walt just carried on and on about it and built a word picture. The executive left with a great deal of enthusiasm, but he admitted that our people seemed not to understand what he was talking about. The ABC executives weren't the only ones who couldn't get their minds around the concept of an imaginative park. Lillian said she was afraid of the park, afraid it was too ambitious. Roy said he wasn't initially enthusiastic either, though he grudgingly justified the project on the grounds that the park could be used as a broadcast studio for television. None of this had the least effect on dissuading Walt, who was more energized than he had been in years. He asked John Cowles, a young architect who was the son of Walt's early Kansas City benefactor, Dr. J.V. Cowles, to expand upon Goff's sketches with architectural drawings, and he set him up in a bungalow on the Burbank lot. In March, using sketches made by animator Don DeGrady, Walt sent a presentation to the Burbank Parks and Recreation Board, whose approval he needed announcing his plans for a park that would generate a small profit rather than one that would operate on a full-bore money-making scale, though it now included a canal boat, a spaceship mock-up, and a submarine ride. That same week, Walt had one of his associates begin searching for a small coach and Shetland ponies to pull it. He had already installed a Shetland pony trainer named Owen Pope at the studio to put up stalls and build carriages. Pope, who lived with his wife Dolly in a trailer on the lot under the water tower, said that Walt would stop by every day to talk about the park. The project hadn't a name yet. Occasionally it was called Mickey Mouse Village, but a few months earlier Sharpstein had written a memo to Walt referring to an anticipated 16mm non-theatrical release of the Old Snow White promotional film for the RKO Salesforce as a trip through Disneyland, and the miniature project had already been dubbed Disneylandia. "'I don't recall a specific occasion when anyone said it's going to be called Disneyland,' said Bill Cottrell. "'I do recall that the name was suddenly said by Walt, and it sounded good, and that was it. "'Thenceforth the park would be known as Disneyland, which was exactly what it would be, "'a land of Walt Disney's imagination, a land under his absolute power.' "'But studio business kept kept interfering, and the plans kept stalling. Though producer Percy Pierce and writer Lawrence Edward Watkin did most of the work on the next British live-action feature, a costume drama called The Sword and the Rose, as they had on the first two, Walt did comment on the script and examine the storyboards in his office to make sure the action never slackened, and he felt the need once again to spend the summer in Europe, ostensibly to keep an eye on the production. And there's a note there. Though Walt delegated a good deal of authority on these films, he nevertheless took his approval of the storyboards seriously. When he noticed that one sequence wasn't shot exactly as agreed, he questioned the director, Ken Anakin, as to why. Anakin replied that he was going over budget and wanted to economize. Have I ever queried the budget, Walt asked. Have I ever asked you to cut? Let's keep to what we agreed. Ken Anakin quoted in Catherine and Richard Green, Inside the Dream, the personal story of Walt Disney. Okay, if that, if that isn't a message from God saying that Walt Disney was meant to eventually come in contact with Star Wars, I don't know what is. Anyway but even if he was essentially relaxing, the pressures were mounting again. Shortly after his return to the studio, he wrote Pierce that he had been as busy as the proverbial tin cats on a tin roof. He was helping Shepherd rob... Roy, the Highland Rogue, another British film, into production for the following year, and he was beginning preparations for the studio's first American-made live-action feature, Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And even as he was planning these films, and even as he was riveted on the park, he was finishing Peter Pan, Sir James Barry's account of a boy who has never grown up, and his encounters with the wicked Captain Hook, which had been in production nearly as long as Alice in Wonderland. He had acquired the rights in the post-Snow White buying spree, had completed a Leica reel as early as 1939, had spent $200,000 on developing the property by 1943, as opposed to only $15,000 on Alice, and clearly feeling affinities for the material, had persistently pushed to get it into production before other films that were in the pipeline. Aside from The Wind in the Willows, which, which was already in production at the time, it was the only feature that the Bank of America allowed to proceed during the war. As it slowly made its way through the typical Disney process, Walt talked to actress Mary Martin, who was appearing in a stage production of the play about voicing Peter. Roy thought her voice too heavy, matured and sophisticated, and the actress Jean Arthur had contacted Walt asking to be considered. Walt had also talked to Cary Grant about voicing Captain Hook, who said the idea intrigued him. Walt talked to Grant as well about starring in a live-action adaptation of Don Quixote with the Mexican star Cantinflas' Sancho Banza, another project that was eventually nixed. As with virtually all the features, while the preparation for Peter Pan dragged on, the studio encountered difficulties. At one point, shortly after the war, impatient with the delays, Walt ordered director Jack Kinney to work on sequences consecutively rather than finish the entire script, before it was sent to be storyboarded, so that a scene would be approved at a morning story meeting and then immediately be put into development. When Kenny asked Walt if he wanted to see what they were doing as they proceeded, Walt insisted that they keep going until the storyboards were finished. After what Kenny said were six months and 39 storyboards bearing 100 sketches each, he made his two-and-a-half-hour presentation to Walt. When he finished, Walt sat silently, drummed his fingers, then announced, you know, I've been thinking of Cinderella. Now, even after Cinderella had been completed and released, Peter Pan continued to inch forward. As with Cinderella, Walt had an entire live-action version shot on the soundstage. It starred Bobby Driscoll as Peter Pan, as Peter and Hans Conrad as Captain Hook, both of whom would do the voices for those characters, and Conrad said he would be called into the studio intermittently over a two-and-a-half-year period to do a few days or a few weeks' work. But with the live action to work for him, Walt complained that he thought the animators had let too much of Driscoll seep into the drawings. Some of these Peter Pans look like hell, Walt told Milt Call. They're too masculine, too old. There's something wrong down there. You want to know what's wrong, Call replied. What's wrong is that they don't have any talent in the place. Call was right that the talent and commitment at Burbank had continued to decline, but even the talent the studio did have struggled. Storyman Bill Pete thought it was another example of too many individuals contending against one another and said that the picture finally got moving when just a few of the staff huddled to finalize the material. Still, they were having to do it themselves without the guidance that Walt had always provided. In the golden days, Walt had imposed his vision and settled disputes. Now Walt himself was uncertain. Frank Thomas, who was charged with animating Captain Hook, said Walt couldn't decide whether Hook should be a slightly comical dandy or a snarling villain, and finally left the determination up to Thomas. When Walt saw Hook's first scenes, he told Thomas, I think you're beginning to get him, and advised he keep going, which meant that Walt was conceding nearly everything to the animators, and that the man who once ordained every frame of his features was now letting the film develop organically. In the end, when Peter Pan was released in February 1953, Walt was much more pleased with the film than he had been with Alice, and so were critics and audiences. It was greeted with a special segment on the highly rated Toast of the Town television program, hosted by columnist Ed Sullivan, that recounted Walt's life, and with the cover of Newsweek louding Walt's plans. Bosley Crowther in the New York Times called it frankly and boldly created in the Disney style, a turn that since Cinderella had regained its positive connotation. I might say that Roy is wearing his Cinderella smile again, Walt bubbled to one correspondent after the receipts started coming in. He was so satisfied that he attended the London premiere that April with Lillian, and later in the year, after spending most of the summer in Europe again on the pretense of overseeing the British live-action production Rob Roy, he attended the Mexican premiere as well but even with the success of Peter Pan and the media acknowledgement that Walt Disney's worst days seemed to be behind him, Walt was still trying to find ways to improve the animation without raising the cost, and he had assigned Ken Peterson to come up with suggestions on how to do so. Peterson's advice was predictable and familiar, given the long-time problems at the studio. Better preparation and integration of talent and assigning and assigning animators only after the script has been thoroughly worked out. But he also counseled slanting stories toward broader cartoon action and cartoon characters that would be easier for less talented animators to draw, and bringing in animators from outside the studio, something that Walt had strenuously avoided all these years, believing as he did in the superiority of the Disney method. Peterson also told Walt that despite the successes of Cinderella and Peter Pan, and despite the desire to produce better pictures at a lower cost, there was a defeatist or negative attitude which asserts that nothing can be done about it.